0: Book of Zephaniah. Book of Zephaniah. And if you need help finding Zephaniah, it's page 959 in my Bible. I don't know if that helps you, but... Zephaniah, near the end of your Old Testament. Just a small little book right after Habakkuk, before Haggai. And... when you found your place, I ask you for able to stand to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll read just the first few verses uh, to begin with this evening, though we will look at the book in its entirety. Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, "...Were the Lord which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, uh, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezkiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the sowing blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the chamarams with the priests. And then that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. And then that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. And them that are turned back from the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord, nor inquired for Him. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Dear Father, just thank you, Lord, so much for who you are and all that you do for us each and every day. Lord, thank you once again, uh, Lord, for the opportunity to stand uh, behind this pulpit tonight and proclaim your word, Lord. I pray that if there's any sin in my life, Lord, you forgive me. that. Lord, I pray you would empty me of myself, and, and Lord, fill me with and empower me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, give me the message that you would have me preach, so to be your message going forth tonight, Lord, and not my own. Lord, I pray that you will use this uh, oft neglected book, uh, Lord, to challenge our hearts tonight. I will give you all the praise, the glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we continue uh, our series on the Minor Prophets tonight with a study of the book of Zephaniah. This short book, comprising of only three chapters, is often overlooked. Perhaps uh, many people find the content of Zephaniah's message difficult to understand, and I, and I can understand why. And it's it's one that's not often uh, talked about, and then we know one that's not often preached about. And sometimes, even when there are reasons, we get to passages we're like, I really don't understand what's going on. Maybe we we tend to skip over it. But just as with the other minor prophet books that we've looked at already and we'll continue to look at. God wants us to read and understand His Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All Scripture is profitable. And that includes these little books in, in the Old Testament that we often overlook and often neglect. They're still profitable for us. They may not be written specifically to us. There are promises, as we've talked about many times before, that are specifically to the nation of Israel. They don't apply to us. But the Bible is still so profitable for us. There's still things that we can learn. We can learn things about um, the character of God, the, uh, the nature of God. We can learn, you know, what God's plan is uh, for his chosen people of Israel. The theme of the book of Zephaniah is the day of the Lord. I remember actually uh, the last time uh, I had an opportunity to preach, we looked at the book of Joel. And that book as well had had the major theme of the day of the Lord. And when studying this book, as well as other prophetic books, it is helpful to remember that prophecy sometimes has both a near partial fulfillment as well as a future complete fulfillment. And that's definitely going to come into play uh, here in the book of Zephaniah. It's going to talk about at times about the uh, incoming, the the imminent uh, Babylonian invasion. But then it's also going to deal with... The yet future Even uh, from our standpoint uh, Time wise as far as The return of Christ The tribulation period uh, The antichrist Battle of Armageddon uh, And the millennial reign of Christ And so we really we can divide This book into three sections In chapter 1 verses 1 to 6 We have the decora- declaration of the Lord In verse 7 through chapter 3 Verse 7 uh, We have the day of the Lord And then, finally, uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 8 through the end of the book, verse 20, we have deliverance of the Lord. So the declaration of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and the deliverance of the Lord. So we begin, first of all, by looking at those first six verses which you already read, the declaration of the Lord. We begin, first of all, in verse 1, with the prophet's pedigree. The prophet's pedigree. And uh, as we already read, Zephaniah's heritage is traced back four generations. Now, that's a kind of uncommon thing to do. Normally, people don't trace back all the way to their great-great-grandfather. But Zephaniah does so to disclose that he's actually the great-grandson of the godly king Hezekiah. And this would make Zephaniah a distant cousin of the current king uh Josiah Josiah just like his uh, uh great-grandfather uh Hezekiah was also uh, a godly king in 2 Chronicles 34 the Bible tells us that in the 8th year of his reign as a 16-year-old boy imagine that uh being king of a nation at 8 years of age um, and then and what amazing job he did as king at, at age sixteen, he, led, he he really began in earnest to turn his heart and life back to God, back to the God that uh, his uh, the, that David uh, served, of course. Um, and four years later, four years after this, as a twenty-year-old, he began to purge out the idolatry in the land. Josiah did everything he could to turn the hearts of the people of Judah back to the one true God, back to the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. He did everything he could. Unfortunately, under the reigns of Ammon and Manasseh, that's Josiah's father and grandfather, Judah had fallen into great idolatry and immorality. And the fact is, is whenever idolatry is rampant, immorality is going to be close behind. And uh, the the wickedness under these two men, uh, Ammon and Manasseh, um, is just despicable. Um As I mentioned before, Hezekiah, he was a godly king. And then his son Manasseh reigned for 55 years. And he was a horrible, horrible, wicked king. And his son Ammon was as well. But Manasseh was just awful. And he led the the people into all kinds of idolatry and immorality. Uh, One of the worst things that happened during the the reign of, of Manasseh is that he turned the hearts of people to worship the god Molech. And the god Molech was, was, uh, was one that uh, he had, it was a, basically like a giant bronze statue that they would heat up and they would offer their children as sacrifices to this god Molech. Just wicked abominations. Things that, that God's people should clearly have known better. And it's that heritage that Josiah comes into. Yes, Hezekiah had been, been a godly king, but that had been a while ago. That had been, oh, at least 60 years ago. You had uh, Manasseh and Ammon that had done great wickedness. And now, and of course, they had led the people after that. And so now Josiah's he's coming on the throne and he's doing everything he can to turn the hearts of the people back uh, to the God of the Bible, back to the God of, of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And this is the, the, the scene that Zephaniah uh, begins to minister in. And you would expect that the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah to be living comfortably in Jerusalem, enjoying a life of ease. I mean, it makes sense. He's, he's royalty. I mean, he may not have been in the exact line of, of, you know, in succession of being king or anything like that, but he was related to Hezekiah. He was a descendant of, of Hezekiah. And he, he could have had whatever he wanted. He could have lived in, in the palace in ease, but no. He did what God wanted him to do. And God wanted him to be a prophet. God wanted him to minister uh, and preach uh, and proclaim uh, God's truth to the people of Judah. And that's what he did. And ministering as God's prophet, especially during this time, you know, it's a dangerous calling. You know, his his uh, later uh, likely contemporary, Jeremiah, would have been likely a little bit after Zephaniah, but probably had some overlap with their ministries. He was arrested and put in a filthy system for admonishing the leaders of Judah to surrender to the Babylonians. There are other prophets that were killed uh, and martyred for just being for standing up and, and proclaiming God's truth. And Zephaniah, he could have just sat back and just lived in the palace and ease, but he's like, no, God has a purpose for me, and I'm going to do it. And the fact is, is that you know, God may have a purpose for you. God may have a plan for you that may not be comfortable, may not be easy, um, may be difficult. Maybe a challenge, but if God's called you to it, do it. And uh, God's going to God's gonna watch out for you. I've heard it said many times, the safest place in the world is in the center of God's will. And so we have the prophet's pedigree, and then in verses 2 through 6, we have the prophet's perspective. So after introducing himself, Zephaniah starts off with a declaration from the Lord. And this declaration is one of universal destruction. And universal destruction, of course, had happened once before because of man's sin during the days of Noah. We're familiar with that story. And universal destruction will happen once again during the coming day of the Lord. But this time the world won't be destroyed by flood, but rather everything will be burned up. We read about that in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. You don't need to turn there for sake of time. I'll just turn there quickly. 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in, which, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So God is, is saying through Zephaniah that hey, there's been universal judgment before and it's going to happen again. Zephaniah notes that God's people, Israel, would not be exempt from this universal destruction. Verse 4, I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You know, just because they were God's uh, chosen nation, if they continue to reject God, if they continue to live in sin, they're just as uh, eligible for judgment and destruction as any other person who has rejected God. The fact is that God cannot and does not condemn sin in the sinner and then condone that same sin in the life of a saint. Now Zephaniah then after this, he, he kind of switches gears just a little bit to pronouncing judgment specifically upon Judah's sin of idolatry. So we have the, the big picture of, of the day of the Lord and then we kind of zoom in and we get more narrow in focus and more immediate in focus and Zephaniah gives uh, pronounces judgment upon uh, Judah for their idolatry and this judgment, unlike the, uh, the day of the Lord, is actually going to happen much, much sooner. And um, as I said, this, as I talked about earlier, um, with with how prophecy works, this seems to be one of those times in prophecy where a near event and future event are mentioned together. It's kind of that you, you hear you sometimes have described as someone looking at at uh, two mountains, and the larger mountain is behind the smaller mountain. So from one perspective, you could be looking at those mountains, those two mountains, but think it to be the same mountain. And that's kind of how it is sometimes in prophecy. And so the impending Babylonian invasion, uh, 4b to verse 6, was to be but a shadow of the end time judgments that were mentioned in uh, verse 2 through 4, uh, verse 8, part 8. And the reason why God would send the Babylonians is because of Judah's sin of idolatry. Judgment is pronounced against those who worship Baal, the pagan priests, the actual worshippers, those that mix worship of Jehovah with false gods like Molech, or as, as mentioned, or as is, uh, uh, spelled here, Malcolm, uh, uh, judgment against the apostates, and finally those who are indifferent to the Lord. Those are just like, eh, I could take or leave it. And Basically, God's like, all right, judgment, judgment just as much to, to those people that are indifferent about God's truth to those that are actively against God's truth. By being indifferent, you are being opposed to it. That's really, what it comes down to. And this judgment worked; it really did. If it, after Judah returned from Babylonian captivity, there is no more mention in the Bible of Jews worshiping false idols. You don't see it uh, from uh, Haggai, out through the rest of the Old Testament, and New Testament. You don't see there being a problem with Jews uh, serving false idols. God took care of this problem with them by, by sending them into the Babylonian captivity. So we have the first section, the declaration of the Lord. We move on secondly to the day of the Lord. And... Chapter 1, verse 7 through chapter 3, uh, verse 7. And we begin, first of all, with the people. The people. Notice uh, verses 7 through 13. The Bible says, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with strange apparel, in the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate, and a howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. Howl, ye inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All they that bear silver are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles, and punish the men that are settled on their, on their leaves, that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. Therefore their goods shall, be, shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. Zephaniah begins this section with a command to be silent. The events to follow were so severe, so sobering, that a pause was needed for reflection. And God prepares His own sacrifice. Notice again in um, end of verse seven, for the Lord had prepared a sacrifice; He had bid His guests. And, and really, this is actually kind of a foreshadowing too. While well, He's dealing specifically with the in, uh, incoming Babylonian invasion, it actually is a foreshadowing as well of the end times with the. Uh, Christ's second coming and, he, and where God will bid the the fowls of the air to come and feast on the armies of men. And so we have kind of a similar thing here. And the reason is that God has rejected all the sacrifices, even the biblical sacrifices that have been offered without a repentance. Because Proverbs fifteen eight tells us the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So he's about to make a sacrifice of his own and a terrible one it was. The guests here mentioned are the armies of Babylon. They would be God's instrument of judgment on the nation of Israel. And we're going to look at that more fully when we deal with the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk deals with that uh, in greater detail. And he, he talks about He's asking God, you know, God, why are you allowing uh, the Babylonians to come in and, and, you know, harm your people? And God's going to uh, discuss that with Habakkuk and explain that to him. So we'll look at that in more detail, that particular topic when we deal with the book of Habakkuk. And, as we read in these verses here in, in verses eight to thirteen god's judgment was to be thorough God's judgment was to be thorough, and we have uh, four groups of people that judgment is pronounced upon, and it just shows the uh, the thoroughness of the judgment of God. We first begin first of all with the uh, what i 'll call the royal rebels. Uh, It says there in verse 8, It shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I'll punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. Because Josiah was a godly king, judgment would not come to Josiah during his reign. However, his sons and their sons went right back to indulging themselves in all the nation's moral and religious sins. They should have been leaders in righteousness instead of in evil. But judgment would fall on them because they followed after foreign customs and oppressed the people. And then judgment moves on, secondly, to what we call the sin seekers. And judgment here in verse 9 is given against those who would plunder and rob their fellow citizens. Uh, The idea there where it says um, leap on the threshold. It is with great zeal these people would plunder the property of others, particularly the poor, to enrich their masters. Thus the homes of the rich were filled with that which had been gained by violence and deceit. And then thirdly, uh, judgment is pronounced on the moneymakers. Judgment is, is against the dishonest merchants who have grown wealthy through wicked practices. And then finally, uh, the leisure lovers. Uh, and these, this is th- those that are, are wickedly indifferent. Uh, these are people where it says... It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles. So that right there, it just shows the, the thoroughness. God's even just searching out everyone. He's searching for everyone that's wicked because He's going to judge them uh, for their wickedness. And punishment that are settled on their leaves that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. In their indifference, these people are denying God's governing providence in the universe. They're denying His activity and agency in the world as if he brought about neither good nor calamity. They're thinking, well, good stuff happens to some people, bad stuff happens to some people. You know, it's just what happens what ha- is what happens. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing that God's going to do about it. That's just fate. That's just uh, what's destined to be. And they're denying the fact that God actually has an active role uh, in the lives of, of mankind. Um, God is still sovereign. Now, yes, God has given us a free will. We do have the choice to choose whether or not to Follow God or not. But God still is sovereign. And God can still uh, exert influence and control uh, in this world. And we'll definitely see that, of course, uh, in fullness in the uh, tribulation period. As God just pours out His wrath uh, and judgments upon uh, the, the sinners that are left in the world. And the judgment against these people, these, these leisure lovers, is that they would not enjoy the fruits of their labors. It says... Therefore, their goods shall become a booty. So, what, what they have gathered up, someone else is going to take. And, um, it says also, their houses a desolation. And they shall, they shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. So, they're going to have all these nice houses, but then, you know, something's going to happen, whether someone else takes it, or maybe they, they die before they could ever enjoy it. They're not going to be able to, uh, dwell in the houses that, that they built. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. In other words, most likely someone else and, Ideally, really what's going to happen is the Babylonians, they'll come in and they will, of course, take out all these people and the Babylonians are going to enjoy the fruit of the labors of these people. So we have the day Lord, we have first of all the people and secondly, verses 14 to 18, notice the period. Notice the the period of the day of the Lord that's that's talked about. Verse uh, 14 to 18, we get in verse 14 and we see the nearness of judgment. The nearness of judgment says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near, and it hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man, shall cry there bitterly. The attack of the Babylonians wasn't far off. Now, we don't know exactly when Zephaniah ministered uh, during the reign of, of Josiah. But what we do know is that about five years after Josiah's death, the first Jews, such as Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, were deported uh, to Babylon. And about 20 years after that, the city of Jerusalem would fall to Babylon. So 25 years after Josiah dies, Judah has been taken into captivity. Talk about near. Really, in the grand scheme of things, 25 years is not a whole lot of time. And um, once again, though, the focus of Zephaniah's prophecy lingers, lingers just for a moment on the upcoming Babylonian invasion, but then jumps forward in time to the coming day of the Lord. And in those days, events will proceed rapidly. Of course, we'll have the, the rapture of Christ will, will come in the clouds and, and call up all those, uh, that are, that are saved. Uh, you know, the Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first and we which are alive and shall come together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then not long after that, the, uh, nation of Israel will sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist for seven years. And of course, Israel will think, alright, finally, we're gonna, we're finally gonna enjoy peace. And of course, during that time, when, when that peace treaty is signed, that officially starts the clock on the tribulation period, and God's going to begin pouring out judgment upon uh, the people of Earth for their constant rejection of Him. And and it's going to be it's going to be rough. I mean, you look at just at the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and I, if I remember correctly, off top of my head, it's to think a, a quarter of the world's population dies during just those first four seals. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and so there's just devastation everywhere. But after three and a half years, the Antichrist will break his peace treaty with the nation of Israel. He'll set himself up to be God, and then God will begin even in earnest, as if the first half wasn't bad enough. God will begin in earnest to really pour out His wrath uh, and judgment upon uh, the people of the world. And what a horrible time that'll be! It's just so, and it just happens so quick. And people and else says if it had been any longer you know, there'd be, even, there'd be no one left. You know, if, if God had allowed the, the tribulation period to last even longer than he's, he's got the time set for. So we have the nearest of the judgment verses 15 to 18, the nature of the judgment. Notice it says, That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And yeah, so part of it, yeah, part of it is this is kind of dealing a little bit with the Babylonian invasion. Of course, that is going to be a a really tough time for for the uh, nation of Judah, as as especially in 586 uh, B.C. when uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and ultimately uh, takes the city of Jerusalem and Judah goes into captivity for 70 years. But as bad as that is, it doesn't even begin to compare to how bad uh, it will be in the day of the Lord. And so Zephaniah, to describe the day of the Lord, he he piles up words and phrases expressing doom and gloom and crowds them into one sentence. And it's just—it's amazing just how many uh, horrible adjectives he, he fits into one sentence. In the day of the Lord, everything will be dark and nobody will be safe. Alarms will be sounded everywhere, but people will not be able to find refuge in cities and high towers. For no defenses will be strong enough to withstand the onslaught. God's wrath will be unleashed against the world that murdered His Son, spurned His Holy Spirit, scoffed at the Scriptures, and persecuted His saints. And furthermore, as, as verse 18 says, It says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of His jealousy. For He shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Furthermore, money will be useless. There's no possibility of buying mercy or a hiding place. Man's fate is inevitable, extensive, And worldwide. And then we move on. So we've had under the day of the Lord, the people, the period, and then uh, finally under this point, the the places. The places. Chapter 2 through uh, chapter 3, verse 7. And we begin first of all with the country of Judah. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. It says, Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Excuse me. Before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the shaft, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness, and maybe ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. <clears throat> so the nation of Judah is instructed to gather together. Stated twice, emphasize the importance. They are, they are to gather together as a religious assembly to entreat the favor of the Lord in order that by prayer He may turn away His judgment. In a similar sentiment. Excuse me, it was mentioned back in in the book of Joel, which we looked at last time. And in Joel chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, God had said there, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a psalm assembly gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? this, So we have a call to repentance and this call to repentance is not just for the Jew but for any that would in meekness turn to God. And the fact is too that even though the, the tribulation period is going to be a time of great judgment, there's still going to be a great number of people that will turn to God. Of course, we have the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that will go out and, and, and proclaim the gospel. And uh, I don't believe that their ministry will be in vain. I believe that, and we see it evidence in, in reading through the book of Revelation, that there will be people that will turn to God. There will be people that will be martyred uh, for their faith. Um And that's the the fact is, is that God is always ready and willing to forgive. That people will just turn their hearts back to Him. And so the message for, for Judah here and the message really for all people throughout all time is just turn back to God. Turn back to God. So we have the, the country of Judah and verses 4 through 15, we have the conquerors of Judah. So Zephaniah then proceeds to pronounce judgment on those nations that have mistreated Israel throughout the years. These nations have already been judged by God to a certain degree, but full and final judgment is still yet future. For sake of time, and because we've uh, dealt with similar statements in previous uh, minor prophet books regarding these these nations, we're going to move ahead to the next section of the book, and that is the capital of Judah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. After dealing with the nations, God goes right back to dealing with with uh, Judah and her capital, Jerusalem, in particular. And notice in verses 1-4 to regarding the capital of Judah. Notice its pollutions. So it says here, Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till tomorrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. In spite of... Sorry. Jerusalem was rebellious, first of all. The people had rejected God's word and departed from the Lord. You know, the sad fact is, is we can see for our for ourselves what happens to a nation when she turns her back on God. We're seeing it right now. Both here in Canada and in America. These are countries that, that were founded... On, on the Bible, and founded uh, as, as Christian nations. And we've seen what has happened as, as people, as society, uh, by and large, have turned their backs uh, upon God. And not only was Jerusalem rebellious, but Jerusalem was polluted, and that was due to long continuance in sin. You can't continue to, to flirt with sin and not have it affect you. And they were polluted by, cause, you know, it wasn't just that they would be like, oh, okay, I'll do it this one time. No, it was constant. They constantly would, would go after, uh, false idols. And of course, along with the, serving those false idols, they'd be involved in just horrible immorality. And Jerusalem also was oppressive. They did not regard the rights of the poor, the orphans, and the widows. And just as the people, so too were her leaders. And, that's kind of a sad thing. You know, this is the rulers in the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. They should have been the ones to set the example. And they were just as wicked, if not more wicked, than the people that they were supposed to, re- to serve and represent. He describes the princes like lions forever searching for more prey. He describes the judges as given to bribery, greed, and extortion. He talks about the prophets as those that are unfaithful to him they claim to represent. These prophets encourage people in their apostasy. And he describes the priests as the fact that their unholy deeds deeds profane the sanctuary and that these priests had distorted the teachings of the law. So because of their pollutions, notice the punishment verses five through seven. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste, that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction, so their dwellings should not be cut off. However, I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. In spite of Jerusalem's iniquities and corruptions, the righteous Lord is in her midst. And this is a reference to the Shekinah glory of God that would dwell upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's this very same Shekinah glory that Ezekiel, prophet Ezekiel, saw leave. And Ezekiel, this was right before, right as the, right before the Babylonians came in. And Ezekiel, he describes in, in, I believe it's the first chapter of his book, he describes the departing Shekinah glory. And the Shekinah glory, he leaves the mercy seat. He leaves the temple, and he's seen leaving, uh, Jerusalem. Because, Israel had constantly and repeatedly rejected their God and served false idols. But still at this point, Zephaniah is saying, Hey, God's still in the midst of us. God's still here. Daily, daily, God gave reminders to the nation that He must either destroy sin or the sinner, but He was ignored. The wicked, they weren't even ashamed of themselves. God even went so far as to warn them that other nations had experienced His judgment because of their sin. And that Judah would be no different. All this—that all these other nations had gone through, that should have been a wake-up call. Hey, Israel, you're no different. I've judged these nations because of their sin. What makes you think that you're going to get off just because you're my chosen people? If you're going to continue to sin, I have to punish you as well. And that's the same truth for us today. If we continue to sin and reject God, God eventually will say, alright, I've had enough. And He will judge us. He will punish us for our sin. Never take for granted the long-suffering mercy of God. Sadly, neither proofs of God's mercy or proofs of God's wrath made any difference. This obstinate nation continued on its downward path. And notice... Again, verse end of verse 7. Howsoever I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. In their defiance, they rose up early. This indicates the deliberateness of their sinning. It's like they couldn't get up soon enough to go out and commit more sin. With great zeal, they pursued their sinful course. Of course, as is pretty much always the case with these minor prophet books, always ends on a note of hope. And in verses 8-20, through we have the deliverance of the Lord. We begin in verse 8, with Israel's regathering. It says, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. This verse is a reference to the battle of Armageddon where the Antichrist will gather his armies to destroy Israel once and for all. And at this time, Christ will return, what's known as the Second Coming, and he will destroy the Antichrist and his armies. And, of course, Israel will gather back together in the land, and they're going to receive the land that God had promised them all so long ago. Again, I say, it seems like I say this every time, but it's so important to say. Israel and the church are different. We have not replaced Israel. God has made specific promises to Israel that He has not yet fulfilled. And unless He fulfills them to the nation of Israel, God is a liar. And if God is a liar, God is not God. And so, He's going to fulfill His promises. Israel's going to have the land. And we have, not only Israel's regathering, but in verses 9 and 10, we have Israel's responsibility. For then will I turn to the people of pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord, to serve Him with one consent, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants in the daughter of my disperse, shall bring mine offering. God had always intended that the nation of Israel be a blessing to the other nations, and that, that's right. At the very beginning in, in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3, the Abrahamic covenant, where God said to Abraham, "Now, the Lord, said Him, Abraham, get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto land that I will show thee." And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curse thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Of course, ultimately, the, the ultimate fulfillment of that blessing to all the nations is Jesus Christ. But the nation of Israel had a job. They were to be a light to the nations around them. They were to point people to God. On rare occasions it did happen. We see you know, people uh, like Rahab the harlot. Or Ruth Moabitess that, through the witness of people that they knew, turned to the God of the Bible. But Israel as a whole failed in their responsibility to be a light. But in spite of Israel's sin, you know God's going to fulfill His agenda anyways. And when Jesus returns, He's going to bestow upon the Gentiles a pure language. This is not speaking of, of a one universal language like pre babel days. Rather, it is a purified, uncontaminated speech with which they may call upon God and serve Him unitedly with the nation of Israel. And the idea there where it says uh, in verse uh, 9, to serve Him with one consent. That word consent literally means shoulder. has the idea of a yoke or burden borne by two. In other words, so on one side you have the Jews, the other side you have the Gentiles, and they're working together. They're serving God together. And that's the way God always intended it. And we have, thirdly, Israel's repentance. Verses 11-13 to 13. And that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride. And thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people. And they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Zephaniah sees a vision of a cleansed and restored Israel. He notices, first of all, a new humility. No longer would Israel be prideful of their unmarried relationship with God. You know, it wasn't because Israel was anything special that God had chosen them. God just chose them. It wasn't because they had earned it. And sometimes, you know, they would take pride in that fact that, oh, you know, God has chosen us. And uh, But no more. You know, they're going to recognize that, hey, God's just great. And God chose to have mercy on us and praise the Lord for that. And they're just going to trust God instead of trusting in themselves. And then there's a new holiness as well. And God's going to purge them of their iniquity as we we saw in verse 13. Then we move on, uh, verses 14 and 15, to Israel's rejoicing. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, in the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. And he gives four reasons to rejoice no more judgment, no more enemies, no more evil, and best of all, their Messiah dwelling in their midst. And then lastly, we have Israel's Redeemer, verses 16 to 20. In that day shall he say to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, he will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the psalm assembly, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth. When I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord... And five blessings are given. The Redeemer, speaking of Jesus, will gather Israel, guard Israel, guide Israel, glorify Israel, and govern Israel. In conclusion, why do the prophets, as I mentioned earlier, why do they consistently close their books with messages of hope? Well, there's three reasons. To begin with, hope is a great motivation for obedience. And the prophets wanted to encourage God's people to submit to God's will and to do what he commanded. God's covenant blessings come to his people only when they obey his covenant conditions. Doesn't mean that they cease being his people, but he blesses them when they do right. And it's the same thing with us. We can't expect God to bless us if we continue to sin against God. But if we will do right, if we will seek after God with all our hearts, if we will love Him, Bible says, with all our heart, strength, soul, and mind, God will bless us as well. A second reason, leave white, end with messages of hope, is the prophet's emphasis on the faithfulness of God. The Lord will keep His promises and one day establish the kingdom that He promised Israel. And since God is faithful to keep His promises we ought to be faithfully obeying His Word. And if we disobey, God's going to be faithful to chasten. And if we confess, He'll be faithful to forgive. And if we live right, He'll be faithful to bless. God is always faithful. No matter how many times we're unfaithful to Him, God is always faithful to us. And it might be that He needs to be faithful in chastening us to draw us back to Him. And I'm so glad that He's always faithful to forgive. Us. First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we often use that verse in soul winning. And I I believe that verse is applicable in soul winning and evangelism. But that verse is written to Christians. it's a reminder that even when we mess up, and we're still going to mess up, we still have that flesh. But even when we mess up, when we turn back to God and confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then the third and final reason. The closing message of hope was an encouragement to the faithful remnant in the land who were true to God and suffered because of their devotion to him. It's difficult to belong to that company of the committed who stand true to the Lord and his word no matter what others may do or say. Knowing that God would one day defeat their enemies and reign in righteousness would encourage the believing remnant to persist in their faithful walk with the Lord. And same with us. You know, we may feel sometimes that we're the only ones living for God. Isn't that what what, uh, Elijah said? He thought he was the only one that, that, had not bowed the knee to Baal. And God says, no, there's still 7,000. 7,000 other than you that have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And we may think that, you know, we're alone. But look, God's faithful. And, and God's, God's gonna take care of us. And God ultimately, in the end, He'll win. You ever heard the expression, I've read the back of the book and we win? We know what's gonna happen. And that'd be hard right now. But we know ultimately that we have the victory. As we sing this song, victory in Jesus. We have the victory in Christ. Let's close in prayer.